my name is Jill Claster. I'm the director of the Kevorkian Center for Near Eastern Studies at New York University. And it is my very special privilege and honor uh, to welcome all of our distinguished guests this evening on behalf of the center and also on behalf of New York University. We're delighted that you're here with us. We are also extremely delighted to be able to co-sponsor this evening with the Mobile Corporation and Penn American Center this reading by the 1991 recipient of the Pegasus Prize for Literature, Mr. Bill Gay Carasu. Uh, his reading, as you know, will be followed by a discussion of his place in literature. The Pegasus Prize for Literature was established by the Mobile Corporation in 1977 to honor and to provide international recognition to authors of merit writing in languages other than English. There is no other prize of this kind administered by a corporation which subsidizes translations into English so that wonderful works of literature may be appreciated by people throughout the English-speaking world. Writers from many countries have been honored with this award. Writers from Egypt, Denmark, the Netherlands, the Ivory Coast, New Zealand, Indonesia, and the Czech and Slovak Republics. The Latin American winner of the Pegasus Prize will be awarded at the end of this month. This has been truly a cooperative venture. And before we go on with the formal part of this evening's program, I want to take a minute uh, to thank the people who have made this event possible. Uh, first and foremost, of course, our thanks go to Mr. Michael Morgan, uh, who is the director of Mobile Corporation's Pegasus Prize. Uh, Mr. Morgan is himself a novelist, and his devotion to international literature is clearly evident in the manner in which he has conceived of and organized this most exciting and prestigious award. Uh, it is an award which, as you know, has brought recognition to writers we might never otherwise have known. I would also like to thank Pamela Pierce, who is the Director of Events and Publicity for Penn, for all of her efforts in coordinating this event and in working with such grace and good humor uh, with the Kevorkian Center. Uh, and finally, but not last, I want to thank Julie Malnig, who is the Associate Director of the Kevorkian Center, uh, who has organized the event at New York University with her usual high level of skill and commitment. It is now my very special pleasure to introduce my colleague at New York University, the Chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Literatures, Professor Talat Hallman. Professor Hallman has had a very important relationship to this evening's event, since he was honorary chairman of the Turkish jury for the Pegasus Prize that was awarded to Bill Gay Karasu. Professor Hallman is a man of so many different parts uh, that it is always difficult to know how to separate them all and where to begin an introduction. Uh, on the one hand, he is a very prolific writer and an internationally known poet and translator. He has written in Turkish and English, 
His books have been translated into Persian, Hebrew, Urdu, and Hindu. He has had a full and recognized career as a poet and translator and was awarded the Thornton Wilder Prize by the Translation Center of Columbia University, among many other honors. Professor Hallman is also a practicing journalist. He has spent most of his life, indeed, as a journalist, uh, was a daily and a weekly columnist for one of Istanbul's leading newspapers. He has also had and continues to have a career as a scholar. Professor Hallman completed his graduate work at Columbia University and has taught Turkish language, literature, and culture at Princeton University, the University of Pennsylvania, and fortunately for us, uh, now at New York University. He has also been a major figure in the literary world and a major figure in Penn. Uh, for Penn, he organized a conference on Near Eastern literature, which was the first conference in the United States to bring together authors from Israel, Iran, Turkey, and most of the Arab countries. As if this were not enough, Professor Hallman was the first Minister of Culture for the Turkish Republic uh, and has served as Turkey's delegate to UNESCO. Um, my favorite of his many awards, with which I will close my introduction, uh, is that he was decorated by Queen Elizabeth II uh, as Grand Knight Cross, the most excellent order of the British Empire, the only academic I know with that award. Uh, please join me now in welcoming Professor Talat Hallman. And what are you reading, miss? The young lady in one of Jane Austen's early novels replies as follows while she lays down the book, and I quote, it is only a novel in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineations of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. I have a feeling that Bilge Karasu, whom I could describe as one of the most unassuming among all the authors I have known, might find even this statement by the young lady too exaggerated. But Bilge's art has achieved the consummation of Jane Austen's description without boasting or arrogance or condescension. Welcoming him to New York University, I should like to offer my tribute to a sage. His first name, Bilge, literally means sage in Turkish and it's a well-earned, well-deserved name for this sage. The awarding of the 1991 Pegasus Fiction Prize to Bilge Karasu was a source of joy for Turkish literature. I've personally felt, and still feel, of course, a deep happiness because Bilge and I have been friends for literally 43 years. We had met first in 1951, Already on the occasion of that first encounter, I had sensed that he was destined to become a major writer. One evening, a mutual friend and I visited Bilge at his home. He was studying philosophy at the University of Istanbul at that time. Now he is teaching philosophy at Ankara's Hacettepe University. At once, he enchanted us with his amiable personality, cheerful face, and graciousness. Then, little by little, 
he unfurled before us the brilliance of his intellect and learning. He was at that time 21 or 22, but he already had many creative arts on his fingertips. He carried a library in his head. On his tongue, he had not one or two, not only five, but eight languages, French, English, Spanish, German, and others. And in recent years, he took up a ninth language, Japanese, but says that unfortunately, he has not been able to master it yet because he is too busy with his writing and teaching. This burgeoning philosopher was a piano virtuoso as well. Moreover, he had amassed a vast knowledge of the visual arts of the world, and he was a very important art critic in Turkey. At age 21 or 22, he had ingested and digested the world classics. At that time, there were probably no more than five people in all of Turkey who had, in my opinion, as extensive a knowledge of 20th century literature as did Bilger. While discussing Dante, he was able to recite lines by T.S. Eliot. He could speak of Goethe and Picasso with the same authority. He was equally knowledgeable about Bach and Baudelaire. To be sure, Bilger was the most enlightened of intellectuals, but beyond that, he was like a one-man age of enlightenment. We had started wondering 43 years ago in what art or what sphere of scholarship he might find his niche. After fluttering about the horizons of many genres and of philosophy, he chose fiction. Since then, Bilge's life has been a life of literature. Turkey's Proust, the Turkish Kavafis, a poet of Turkish fiction. Our lives crossed many times, many get-togethers, exchanges of letters, luncheons, and other encounters throughout the years. Also, our youthful passion for Faulkner in 1952, I published the first Faulkner translation into Turkish. In 1956, he published the second Faulkner in Turkish. Years later, he honored me by opening one of his books with a line from one of my poems, and I cherish that privilege indeed. He has won many major awards for his original work and for his translations. Today, Bilge is the recipient of an outstanding international award, the Pegasus Prize for Literature, given to a different country every other year. Pegasus, that magnificent winged horse, flew from country to country and landed in Turkey in 1991. Pegasus is a creation of Lycia, a civilization which had flourished in Anatolia, and that mythic bird returned home to Turkey thanks to Bilge Karakusu's virtuosity as a novelist. The best Turkish novel of 1980-1990 for that 10-year period was selected after long deliberations by a jury composed of some prominent Turkish professors of literature and literary critics. They reviewed dozens of major novels which had been published in the 1980s and had not yet been translated into English. Bilge Karasu's exquisite novel entitled Night was the choice. The testimonial written by the jury reads in part, the Pegasus Literature Prize is given to Bilge Karasu's novel Gece, Night, which represents in content, language, and structure one of the most advanced landmarks in the development of the Turkish novel within the last 10 years. Now, 
That novel, Night, is available in excellent English translation, just published by the Louisiana State University Press. The translator is also with us, Gunnelli Gunn, who is herself a very important and interesting novelist who writes mainly in English and translates some major Turkish fiction into English. She holds a PhD from Johns Hopkins University in comparative literature and has taught at Oberlin College. She lives in Oberlin, Ohio with her husband and her son. And she, in the past, was a member of the Iowa International Writers Workshop. And her two major novels published in English are Books of Trances and On the Road to Baghdad. The latter novel has been already translated into many European languages. And she is now working on her new novel, which she describes as her truly American novel. It's entitled Temple at North Liberty. Schopenhauer once declared that the business of the novelist is not to relate great events, but to make small ones interesting. Bilge Karasu's art, with a rare mastery, stands as a miracle of fiction which leads us from small events to great realities. The novel, according to Samuel Johnson, is a small tale generally of love. Bilge's masterwork, entitled Göçmüşkediler Bahçesi, has reconfirmed this definition. But the short tales that make up that book, which I think is one of the best pieces of fiction in the Turkish language, and I hope will be translated into English someday, that, that body of short tales constitute an original mythology and an autochthonous human comedy. I wonder how many writers there are in the world as meticulous as Bilger. In Turkey, many authors boast of writing rapidly, of pouring their works out like a waterfall. One major novelist once told me, with great pride and ease, this new novel of mine took me more than uh, two months to write. But Bilge has not produced much. However, he has created the essence of the essence in his fiction. It is like uh, what Flaubert said, uh, well, what was said about Flaubert, that occasionally he would work on a single sentence for days on end. And there's also an anecdote about Somerset Maugham, who uh, was a house guest and uh, was, of course, writing every day. And his host asked him once, what have you written today and how much? Maugham answered, today I put in a comma. His host asked him the next day, well, how about today? How much did you write? Mom smiled. Today I shifted the comma. <laughs> I know very well that Bilger has worked on some of his short stories for many years. For him, talent, intellect, imagination, and the richness of language are not enough. Virtue lies also in the quest for perfection. Our jury found it difficult to make a choice between two of Bilger's novels, published in that period, Night and Guide are the two titles. Ultimately, Night was one, was selected, it won. But there is a powerful connection between these two titles. Bilge's art, let me say, is a night guide. With the groping and the dexterity of language, 
with tremulous candles which hide suns inside, he leads his readers from nightmares to broad daylight. There are times when Bilge's guidance takes us to a paradise. I offer my thanks and congratulations, my respect and affection to Bilge, the sage of Turkish literature. for making uh, my book possible in English. Uh, I must also thank, of course, uh, the Louisiana State University Press. They produced the book. Well, now I'm supposed to read. Uh, I read two passages, that is, two, two sections of the book in Turkish. And then Ms. Gunn will read uh, quite a number of sections in English. Bu kez görevim epeyce güç. Nicedir işleri de duyguları da abartmaktan çekinir oldum. Yanı başında ya da hiç bilmediğim bir yerde bir başka insanın çektiğim acıların, karşılaştığım güçlüklerin, duyduğum sevinçlerin kat kat büyüğünü çekebileceğini, duyabileceğini, kat kat büyüğüyle karşılaşabileceğini anladığım, daha önemlisi düşündüğüm zamandan beri, yani 17-18 yıl kadar oluyor, kendisinden ayrıldıktan kısa bir süre sonrasına rastlıyordu dediğim, işte o zamandan beri en büyük acıları bile biraz küçültürüm gözümde, gönlümde. Bütün bu sözler bir bakıma boş sözler. Olsa olsa kendimi size biraz bir parçacık tanıtmaya yarar. Onun için de alakoymuyorum kendimi yazmaktan. Evet, görevim oldukça güç diyordum. Gerçekte sanırım hemen hemen herkesin çok güç bulacağı bir görev bu. Üstelik başarsam da başarmasam da gereğini yerine getirsem de getirmemeye karar versem de bana verilebilecek, verilecek son görev olacak. Ya ölmem, ya kaçmam, ya da bambaşka biri olmam gerekecek. Öylesine bambaşka biri ki, bunun güçlüğü karşısında kaçmak daha kolay görünüyor. Hele ölmek hepsinden kolay. Kendimi öldürmek durumunda da kalsam. Yazı yazmasını bir parça öğrendimse, ikinizi okuyarak öğrendim. Doğrusu bu ya, sizlere yaraşır bir öğrenci değilim, besbelli. Gene de yazıyorum. Yazı değil bu nasıl olsa. Beni çok kınamayın. Bu kağıtları size ulaştırmak benim için çok kolay. Ne var ki bunları okumanızın sizin için en yararlı olacağı vakti şu anda kestiremiyorum. Birkaç gün sonra ister şu ister bu biçimde ben ben olmayacağım artık. O güne dek vakit buldukça bunları yazacağım size. Ulaştırması ayrıca düşünmeliyim onu. 
Bir bakıma en gizli, şu anda düşünülebilecek en gizli ama kimin için, kim açısından en gizli? Doğrusu ya sorsanız söyleyemeyeceğim. Görünüşte bir memurum ben. Bana buyruk veren de memur görünüyor. Ama gördüğü işler, yaptıkları, bana yaptırdıkları bu memurluğun bütünüyle dışında. Gizli, evet bizim açımızdan ama biz gerçekte kimiz ki? Evet, en gizli bir işi size açmaya niyetlenmekle kendimi kötü bir duruma düşürüyorum. Gene de diyorum ki, iki kişinin kurup yürütmeye karar verdiği bir tasarının gizli tutulması, birinin kafasındaki düzenin bir gerçeklik olabilmesinin koşuluysa, bu gerçekleşme iki kişinin susmasına bağlıysa, kendini dev aynasında gören birkaç kişi var demektir. Biz kendimizi bir şeyler sana verdik işte. Kızmakta ne kadar haklılar, siz böcekleri onların sizin elinizden çıktığını siz ne belirttiniz ne de gizlediniz ya, yazmakta ne kadar haklıymışsınız. Biz kendimizi bir şeyler sana verdik çıktık. Gerçekte herhangi bir gücün bizim elimize geçmesi için bile daha çok pek çok uğraşmamız gerekecek. Uğraşıyoruz da ama bu çabanın gitgide kirlenmesi beni kaygılandırıyor. Uzun süredir tasarladıklarımız gelip gelip üç noktaya dayanıyor. Bize karşı olanların sayısı pek büyük. Bizi küçümseyenlerin sayısı da azımsanacak gibi değil. Bizi kullananlar, kullanmaya elverişli bulanlar bile bizden sayıca çok neredeyse. Kullanılmayı kabul ettikse nasıl olsa bir gün her şeyin elimize geçeceğine inandığımız içindir. Bu inancım azalmadı. Biz kendimize göre haklıyız. Güzel, büyük bir şey istiyoruz. Gerçekleştireceğiz de. Ama demin sözünü ettiğim kirlenme nesnel olgulara girer. İnsanların vurulup öldürülmesini haklı bir iş diye savunmak gücünü bulabiliriz kendimizde. Ama eski çağlarda ancak sarayların küçük düzenbazlarının tasarladığı, başvurduğu ya da yaptığı, işlediği küçüklükleri toplum ölçüsünde büyüterek tasarlamak, işlemek o kadar övünülecek bir şey sayılır mı? Thank you. Selected a group of entries. I call these entries into the four. There are four notebooks in this book, Night, um, that are written by four narrators. Although they are overlap as the book um, goes on, and um, I selected uh, entries mostly from uh, first notebook because I thought that there's a Uh, logical uh, progression that might intrigue you and introduce you to this book. I begin with entry number one. Night. Oh, you're not hearing me. Maybe I'm not close enough to it. Is this better? How about this? 
Is this better? Okay. Okay. Um, page number three. Number one. Night slowly comes on, descends. Already it has begun filling the hollows. Once these are full and it empties onto the plain, everything will turn gray. For a while, no light will go on in the hollows or out beyond. The glow on the hills will seem for a time to suffice. Then the hills too will sink into darkness. In this dark, the tongue alone will appear able to survive. In this place where no weight or reality remains. The one reality the darkness will seem to offer is in lending itself to being spoken between two people, two walls. Then clothes will start to come off so that the night-inflicted wounds may smart all the more. Firm young muscles will move into the night. Flabby muscles will turn to jelly during the night. Only the tongue will tell of the lights on the hills and in the underground palaces. Only language will speak of the single-celled creatures bathing in this light. It is slowly getting dark. Up from our bowels, night rises up toward the heart and the eyes. Two. It is early afternoon when the first night, first night workers appear in the streets, even if only a few. Their job is to get the night ready by digging holes, for example, where night may easily collect when it comes. Their job is to prepare people for the night, to take young muscles and get them used to stripping down for when the night will require that, to get them used to the longest night by penetrating their naked flesh with cold, thin metal rods or by burying red-hot buckshot within it. By evening, the night workers become easy for everybody to spot. Tools in hand, they wander through the streets in ever-increasing numbers, preparing the night, preparing for the night. The tools they bear are fashioned of iron, cut from well-tanned hides, carved from choice timber, or molded from pliant resins. They serve to pound, tear, pierce, gouge, twist, and snap off. Also, to burn and to break. These tools have been designed and especially made for use on young bodies. Seven. It's a, this is a footnote. 
footnote 1. It's hard to affirm this, but some writers attain the greatest refinement of expression through words shot out like arrows, one after the other. Others attain it through words flowing like underground waters. My language must strive for the suppleness and rhythm of a body bending and rising as it gathers flowers. Eleven. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't recall setting down my briefcase or keeping it open in the presence of others. Yet inside it, I found papers I'd never seen before, although I had expected this and waited for it and deemed it was inevitable, folded, unfamiliar in their whiteness. I unfolded them in the briefcase and hesitantly pushed aside one on top. Nemas and theaters are out of bounds. Within the next 24 hours, Sevinch may arrive. That seemed clear enough, or was it? Narrow, dusty file rooms must be pretty much the same the world over. Books and movies have made that abundantly clear, have, have they not? Enlightened as we are, we have to be pleased that the one and only way of increasing efficiency is being adopted in our country too. As registry offices get smaller and stuffier, more and more people are seated at desks like sheep out to graze. The spaces between the desks are reduced to keep them from moving about. And in order to cut costs, two people are assigned to sit opposite each other at the same desk. Faced with what ought to terrify us, we act as if it's something auspicious. We do our best to content ourselves with what we're conceded, with such a basis for happiness. Why should we lose, choose to live in fear? This morning, the woman, whose name may have been Sivinch, came by my house to pick me up and told me I had to go somewhere with her. I tried not to be scared. Refusing to go never occurred to me. It was only after the car she had waiting out front began to speed along that I thought to ask, who are you? It's of no consequence who I am, she said. I'm only a messenger. This is a very interesting entry. Uh, it's a little difficult to read because there are, there's a long uh, aside. So when that aside happens, what I'm going to do is turn to the side, and then you will know that it's a long aside, and then go back to the text. 12. Daytime troubles the night workers. Darkness that stands behind the day, in their estimation, is a happiness that is absolute. For them, the land of felicity exists only in a fairy tale past where, once upon a time, the thickly shaded garden swaddled them, girded, and fed them. They carry tirelessly the memory of a calm darkness that slipped from them as the day began to break, never to be retrieved. Within this calm, this twilight, they dream of a limitless ego 
embracing the universe, of galloping horses, of enemies vanquished, and of angers appeased only by the flow of blood, not letting anything else survive. When somewhere in the night, the night workers dive into the dim waters of a dream and begin to swim. They are like adults carried back, borne by loving hands to their childhood home. They are like the people who, when looking out the window of that house, instead of the city they know and remember, can only see an unbounded spread of red earth. There, where stood the familiar playgrounds, barracks, gardens, and parks, they see now as the only trace of the existence, the passage of other people. The expression other people has an ambiguity with them. It means someone other than the self. It also means others than those they consider their equals or those they see as reflections of themselves. A stone barrier, for example, barely perceptible on the red earth, the meaningless functionless stone barrier traverses the field of red soil from one end to the other. The dreamer perceives it slowly. The emptiness that this barrier, no matter how hard one looks, the huge equestrian statue that had once stood on an imposing stone dome at the center of the barrier is no longer visible, seems to cross from one end of the, to the other is unbelievably vast. What meets the eye is like land that has been plowed and planted and has turned boggy after the first rains. Yet, not a single tree, beast, or human can be detected. The earth is somewhere between orange and red, the stone barrier dirty white. Even the sky has turned the red of dawn or sunset from reflecting the vast emptiness. This is the light of the hour when the day gives up the ghost, or when its hour of victory is still far off, beyond this imponderable spread of land. Only in dreams can such a beyond present itself. There are stains that resemble, perhaps, clumps of green, and shed-like shapes seem scattered around in clusters, but here there are no streets, no people. This is a city, but a city where no one but the observer exists. It is the shadow of a city where even farming has been forgotten. A city dead, scraped off the face of the earth. For horses to gallop on this land, the vestiges of man have to be still further erased from the earth and the sky. Happiness for the night workers consists in seeing themselves on horses galloping or watching the horses gallop in the middle of this land as the day sinks. But without leaving their window, the darkness of their window, it consists in believing it possible to suck an inexhaustible dark milk from a breast that never goes dry and to go on with a life of swimming, of flying, without waking up from the dream, 
without being denied the paradise that they don't want to believe is lost. Thank you, that was moving and very beautiful. Um, I have a confession to make, uh, and that is to tell you that I am really starstruck, uh, not for actors, but for writers. And at the top of my list of favorite authors, whose fan club uh, I have happily joined actually quite a while ago, uh, is Mary Lee Settle. So I am actually very grateful for the opportunity of introducing her because it gave me a chance to meet her, uh, for one thing, uh, and also it gives me a chance to thank her for a great many, many hours of reading pleasure. Uh, it is, of course, very fitting that Mary Lee Settle participate in tonight's program because she spent so much time living in Turkey and then returned after an absence of 16 years and wrote a very moving and beautiful book about her experiences. Her book, Turkish Reflections, A Biography of a Place, was published in 1991 to great acclaim. I read it and then reread it because it is so evocative of a country and of a people and also so revealing of the personality of the writer. As much as any of her other books, this one made me most especially eager to know the writer. Mary Lee Settle has also written a novel set in Turkey called Blood Tie, for which she won the coveted National Book Award. The Settle is also the author of the Beulah Quartet, a large number of other novels, two works of nonfiction, and a memoir entitled All the Brave Promises. I am happy indeed to welcome Ms. Mary Lee Settle, who will speak on Turkish literature. Thank you. If I move this, will it help? Can you all hear me in the back? Good. I'm going to yell. I feel like I can only share a very innocent experience with all of you here because I realize that a lot of people here in this audience know a great deal more about Turkish literature than I do, God knows. I only want to talk about a discovery, and it was a wonderful one. No more innocent human being was ever washed up on the shores of Anatolia than I was, escaping from the island of Kos where they threw some rocks at me. And it was broke and Turkey was only six miles away, so I went to Turkey. Isn't that a wonderful reason for going to a country? Well, I went for a little while and stayed three years and fell in love with Turkey and with the language, and with a very rare, old, wonderfully precise art, which is Turkish writing. There's a great deal which is not precise, 
Well, we'll forget that. Because I want to talk about some classic Turkish writing, which has had a great effect on my own work, I hope. But first, I'm going to speak to the few people in the audience who know as little as I did when I was washed ashore. The Turkish language is a language of poetry in itself. I found it extremely hard to learn because it has no connection. I mean, when you know that a glass is a glass in, it sounds like that in German, it sounds like that in English, well, you have to learn that it's a badak or a tabak or whatever the devil it is <laughs> when you want a drink in Turkey. And you have to, I had to learn it like a child. And I did learn it very well like a child and came back to this country speaking Turkish just about like a five-year-old village boy, which meant that I could do anything I wanted to and I had an excuse to make mistakes. I had to do, and this has to do with what happened to the language, I had to do my own copy editing for the Turkish in blood tie, of which there's quite a lot. And the reason I had to was that I could not trust a reformed Turkish writer. And you all, all of you who are Turkish know why. They would slash out the Ottoman word, the Osmanli words. I couldn't have this because it was village Turkish that I was speaking. I was in Iowa, of all places, trying to do this when I found out that I would have to do it and I was as far from Turkey as I could possibly be. I asked somebody how to get the New York Times and they said, well, there's a man here and his name is, now wait a minute, what is his name? They said, something like Kala Jolu. And I thought, how wonderful. There's a Turk in Iowa City. <laughs> I was delighted to find this out. And his wife took me on to tutor me in Turkish so I could copy edit my book. Alas, she taught me a great deal she taught me 26 Turkish tenses. I am afraid to say a word in Turkish because every time I tried, she'd say, oh, no, no, no, that's not Hanım Efendi. I said, I don't want to be a Hanım Efendi. I just want people to understand what I'm saying, and I want to be able to read and translate. And I want to thank Talat Harman right now, who introduced me to my favorite of all Turkish prose writers, present company accepted, and that is Said Faik. Said Faik is, I think that, I, I hate having to compare him with uh, Eurocentric writers. This is ridiculous. He is a Turkish writer. Uh, he only happens to be dead. People read Chekhov, they read other fine short story writers, but go to Istanbul, read what you can of Said Faik and follow him. Let's call him a guide. I go to Bugada and a man is bringing in the nets and I know who he is 
and where he came from and what he's like because of Seidfeig. The other Turkish writer who has guided me is Nazim Hikmet. Now these two, so many of you in here, Nazim Hikmet's Human Landscapes is, I think, probably the greatest long poem of the 20th century in any language that I have had a chance to know about. It's an incredible piece of work, and it is, again, this thing which is more Turkish than anything else about Turkish literature. It's about people. They move. When you talked about a man bending to pick flowers, this is what they are like, this suppleness, this reality that is in the line without it being self-conscious. When you read Nasim Hikmet, you know Kerim. You know why he let the um, canary out of the cage. And damn it, the key didn't fit the next night when he wanted to let all the turkeys out. He did it. He was 13 years old. He did it because the man had been unkind to some women whose husbands were in jail. These are the connections, the knittings together. Those of you who have not been in Turkey, don't read me before you go to Turkey. Read the translations of Nazim Hikmet, of Said Faik. Read this book. Read Yunus Imre, who is as modern a Turkish poet as I know of. And he's a modern Turkish poet because of the, which so many of you know about, of the reform of the Turkish language when the Osmanli and the Arabic words were struck out of it. It was easier for a Turkish student to read Yunus Imre, who was 15th century, 14th? No, late 13th and early 14th. All right. Neither was 13th, It was easier, and I think I'm right about this, Anna, for a student to read Yunus Imre in Turkish than it was to read one of the divan poets uh, who may have published poetry in 1910 because the language had become clear and clear. It's a very clear, clean language. And the other of the modern poets, and by the way, this shows our extreme and wonderful American ignorance. I was invited to the Turkish New Year celebration in Washington. And somebody got, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, not the Turkish, the Persian, the Persian New Year celebration. And it was at the, uh, oh, the, the, one of those many buildings at the Smithsonian. I went to it, and somebody got up and made a long talk about this fine Persian mystic poet, Jalaluddin Rumi. And I thought, well, how many Persians were born in Afghanistan? This is our level of knowledge. Jalaluddin Rumi has the same quality of uh, modern simplicity about him. He walks in the street. He notices food. He notices what people look like. And I think I can sum up the whole thing by saying, these are people who care about what they see and try and tell you as clearly as possible 
what it is. So those of you who have not known about these writers before, find the translations and read them. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we will now move into the next part of our program this evening, a panel discussion on Turkish literature, which will be moderated by Professor Talat Halman. Uh, two of our panelists are already here with Professor Halman. Uh, Mary Lee Settle, I will invite to come back up in just a moment, or now, if you would like. And, uh, this is my opportunity once again to introduce another of my favorite authors, uh, Mona Simpson, who we are truly delighted to have with us this evening. Mona Simpson is the author of the novel Anywhere But Here, which was published, as I'm sure all of you know, to very great acclaim, which has been translated into 14 languages and which I have also really enjoyed reading. She has written The Lost Father, published in 1992, and among her many awards and honors, Mona Simpson is the recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, the, the Whiting Prize, and the Hodder Fellowship at Princeton University. I also discovered, but actually very recently this evening, in fact, that Mona Simpson has taught uh, in the creative writing program, in our graduate creative writing program here at New York University. Uh, she currently lives in New York and California and is on the faculty, also of Bard College, regularly on the faculty at Bard College, where she teaches fiction writing. She is also, and very importantly for this event, a committee member for the 1993 Pegasus Prize for Literature. I know that Ms. Simpson also has a particular and personal interest in Middle Eastern literature, so we are very pleased indeed that she is able to join us for the discussion this evening. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Turkish literature is, of course, terra incognita in this country, in many parts of the world. But I think we are encouraged by the fact that there is a mounting translation activity. And of course, such prizes as Pegasus Prize, with its international stature and prestige, uh, lend Turkish literature a new optimism, a new opportunity, new dimensions of recognition. And as part of that, of course, we are grateful to major American writers like Mary Lee Settle and Mona Simpson, who have taken an interest in Turkish literature, either through personal experience by living there or by reading the newly published works. In this case, of course, the work that we are concerned with, that we are proud of in many ways, is Bilge Karasu's Night, which is so ingeniously and inventively translated into English by Güneli Gün. And I think I should like to start the discussion by first asking Mona Simpson what her impression of the novel is. And then we're going to turn the tables on the creator of the novel and the recreator of the novel in English uh, by asking them to 
talk from within, so to speak, of the experience of Turkish language and literature and the creative impetus of the work itself. So if I could call on Ms. Simpson sure. to give us her impressions. Happily. Can, can we hear? Yes. Okay, good. Um, I was struck when I first read Night. Um, I, I come to Turkish literature from a sort of a back door, really. I come, I'm come to it more from literature from the Arab world. And, and so I was, I was struck when I first read Night by the modernism of it, by the, the combination of the starkness, which obviously derives from Kafka and bits of Chekhov, along with the sort of lyricism that is, is utterly unfamiliar to Kafka and Chekhov. It's, it's a sort of uh, a much more fanciful language which accompanies the, the lack of reality in the, or the, the transport from reality in the narrative. Um, it, from my background, from my very limited, I should say, background in, in Arab literature, it, it did have reminiscences and echoes with Kavafi much more than with a traditional writer who everyone's familiar with here now, like Nagib Mahfouz. Or, um, so I was, I guess, I was taken with its with its with its purity and its its distillation, most of all. Um, it, it's it resembles more than anything I've I've seen um, from that part of the world what what flourished for a brief moment here in the '60s and, and we called a, a prose poem, and I think we never really had person. In, in, in English, in American English, who crystallized that form and made it into a serial novel or an episodic novel like this and, and really brought it to, to this kind of level. But it was very exciting for me to read the form, I think. Thank you, Ms. Simpson. Now, could I call on Ms. Settle to give us her impressions of the novel? You really enlightened us with those uh, very compelling statements about your impressions of Turkey and Turkish literature in general. And I'm amazed at the scope of your knowledge of Turkish literature and your sensitivity about it. It so happens that your favorites are also my favorites in Turkish literature. Oh, good. <laughs> it would have been terrible if they hadn't been there. Um, I found the book, and I'm, I'm going to argue with Mona because I found the book very classic, as a Turkish classic. Uh, it has that same sense of <coughs> a piercing reality, even when it's a, oh, I wish I could explain. It's what happens when your hackles rise at the right word in the right place. It's that quality of piercing intensity which only comes from, um, from pure images of real things. No matter how these images are used, they may be used in nightmare, and certainly they are <coughs> in this. But when he writes about, for instance, writes about <coughs> the streets toward the end of the book, it's an incredible series of images simply because it is a man walking mm. down a very familiar street. A familiar street that you've never seen. But when he comes to the, fa to the 
fact that the streets are raised and lowered, you take it as an intense reality. And now I'm speaking within the book. <coughs> if you talk about it, then of course there are Kafkaesques and so forth things. I compared it to Rilke's Notebooks of Malte mm. because of just this quality that you were talking about. Um, prose written with the, not with imitating poetry, but with the intensity and the, the knife-edged images of poetry. Sometimes you find it in Conrad. Mm. Uh, in Typhoon, for instance, is a perfect example. He doesn't talk about great storms and blah, blah, blah, and so forth. A man is sitting in a, um, a room a cabin on the ship, and suddenly the stars ride up the porthole. And you know that the ship is healing. He doesn't say, and now the ship is healing. He just said, he just shows you. He doesn't tell about it, he gives you it. And over and over and over in this book, you find the same thing happening. Thank you, Ms. Settle. Uh, now I think I'm going to turn the tables on uh, Bilge Karasu and ask him a question that is probably agonizingly difficult for him to answer, understandably, because I, I feel that he has not, not, not only the uh, tremendous joy of creating a work of fiction, but he also suffers immensely. He is the most divine masochist I know. And I, I know that he has probably uh, worried about many sentences. He probably rewrote many passages over and over again. And as a result of it, I feel that he has created as usual and he has been able to sustain this type of creative energy for many decades now. He has created something that is miraculously both extremely <coughs> subtle and very powerfully dramatic. That is the impression I have about the quintessence and the power of, of this work. I wonder if he would agree with me, and I wonder if, if he could share with us his um, recollections of how he composed this marvelous novel. Yes, it is difficult. As a question, uh, how? Uh, well, uh, I started writing it in 75, and uh, certain uh, things that had, that had happened a few years before were still very much alive among us and uh, in our minds, in hearts. Uh, I just started uh, writing short uh, sections, short chapters. Uh, it was a kind of uh, challenge, you know. I, I was going to write one a day, uh, and it went on for some time like that. And then, uh, of course, it was no longer a challenge. It was a compulsion. Uh, but uh, when I finished, almost uh, 
It was in, in spring, 76. I, I knew uh, I had not finished anything. I just tested the book on a few friends of mine, loyal, faithful friends. Uh, they didn't know what to say. Mm, so I left the manuscript for some time. And then I started working on it again. Uh, the work went on until 1982. Uh, I didn't change uh, anything uh, uh, from the first version in some sections, but in some others I, I made great changes. Some other chapters were written over and over and over for about uh, three years. In 82 I thought that I had found the uh, final uh, form. And at the end of the summer of 82, I decided it was over. I mean, the work was over. Mm, it wasn't. I continued uh, until uh, the spring of 84. But then, I mean, it was just uh, playing with things. It was not work as such. Uh, is that enough? <laughs> it's not a, enough of a confession as far as I'm concerned, but, but we don't want to tire you out. Uh, I once had the honor of uh, writing the introduction to Gunelli Gunn's uh, wonderful novel entitled <clears throat> On the Road to Baghdad, and that was an extremely difficult task because it's a very uh, complex novel with um, a historical context to it, and I remember before writing a very short introduction, I had to read the novel over and over again. It wasn't simply an effort to find out about the different dimensions of sensibility and historical characters and probably she, she had to do exactly the same thing with the novel she so successfully translated into English. And I, I'm curious to find out what her approach was as a translator or a remolder of the novel uh, and what her major difficulties were. I know one difficulty was the author himself, with his perfect command of English, he was keeping an eye on everything in translation. But, but, but finally, that collaboration, which turned out to be very pleasant and ended in this wonderful friendship, uh, gave us a superb translation. Could, could you tell us about your experiences about you know, translating the novel? Um, it's always interesting for um, a, a committed fiction writer to uh, translate another fiction writer. In this case, um, I think, I'm not sure about this, but probably we both started with poetry as youngsters and uh, went on to uh, doing uh, prose. 
But as you can uh, hear just from having uh, the book read to you, that there is a poetic um, rhythm and cadence and a um, sensibility that comes directly from poetry in this book. The, uh, many of the um, entries are prose poems, I feel, uh, rather than fiction, especially like in the first part uh, where there's this sustained voice. Now, the book has uh, at least four voices uh, and three consciousnesses. Uh, and all these work with each other to get what I consider the truth. Um, one of the things as a fiction writer that I envy the poets for is that they can talk about the truth of a moment, whereas fiction writers like myself are always pulling tricks. I have you know, tricks up my sleeve because Fiction is one way of making things add up that don't add up in real life. It's a consolation by telling these lies to ourselves, by telling ourselves these stories. It seems that the, the, the, the world makes sense. Whereas the poet, I feel, can have the luxury or the, the um, not the luxury, the luxury is not the word, um, the gift of telling the truth of the moment. So Night is a book in which uh, the poetic consciousness is constantly asking what the truth is. And it's constantly shifting, uh, working upon each other and the reader so that at the end of the book, not only do we realize that there are not four narrators. There's only one narrator. Uh, in fact, there is now the reader who is also the author who has understood this book and recreated it as, as the book unfolded itself. It also becomes the property of the reader. So as a translator, of course, I, as I got into it, uh, I found myself uh, changing uh, with each revelation or with each truth as it unfolded. And I come from a school of translation. I was trained in the Midwest. I went to the University of Iowa to the writer's workshop, and I uh, learned a kind of translation that perhaps um, has a kind of literary imperialism that's connected to it. I admit this freely, that in a sense, uh, we like to annex other literatures into English. So it sounds like as if uh, the work had been written in English, that there, there's not this distance of another culture, but that it's immediate. And it sounds like the stuff that we're doing now the stuff that is being done in this country. So I come from that school, um, and it has its problems and it has its good parts. The good parts is that it speaks to an American audience instantly. 
so that they know where this is coming from. One of the things that I was uh, interested in, uh, in the few reviews that have come, come out so far, that uh, people are surprised that this book is coming from Turkey. Well, what do you think, you know? Of course it's coming from Turkey. Of course some very interesting um, experimental uh, postmodernist work is going on in Turkey. I mean, Turks have been uh, dealing with the modern novel uh, and postmodernist novel and magic realism. I mean, it wasn't invented yesterday. So, uh, you know, it's going on there. And it's, it's, uh, there's a, a whole lot more to come. And if I may put in a plug, you know, um, there's going to be uh, another book uh, by Orhan Pamuk, uh, Karakitap, which translates as Black Book, which is going to come out uh, this August, which I've also done. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, work, and I think it will make a lot of waves in this country. And probably a lot of you have seen The White Castle, which has... Uh, also um, attracted a lot of attention in the West. These are very sophisticated writers. That I'm, well, that's what I'm trying to say. It's not surprising. Um, Karasu and Pamuk and Latife Tekin, whom we're beginning to hear about, these are extremely interesting writers. And I, uh, you know, thank for the privilege of being in on it. Thank you very much. It's been very enlightening indeed. I suppose when a moderator runs out of questions, the best thing for him to do is to have the panelists cross-examine one another. And I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Settle now, if you had one question to ask for the life of you, what would that question be? Uh, what would you ask the author about I would, the book or about his creative life? I would ask the author to explain to Western readers about Turkish names, N the name Sevim, the name Sevinç. Um, I don't think that people who don't know Turkish really understand that uh, Turkish names can be anything. When everybody took names in, what was it, 1934, yes. they took all kinds of gorgeous names like <laughs> Vamik Vulkan, that's my favorite. Yes. What's Volcano. That? Volcano. I mean, um, so the names mean something. I remember I was diving one time with a young lady from Istanbul, and uh, I said, I didn't get your name. And she said, Ishik. And I said, Bless you. <laughs> and she said, No, Ishik, it means light. <laughs> This is how ignorant we are about names. So I, could you explain the, the two names? Uh, well, the, the, <laughs> the two names, of course, I can explain. But uh, uh, Turkish names always have a meaning, as you know. Exactly. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, they, they are uh, given uh, too early. Uh, I, I mean, later on, people do not uh, uh, really uh, deserve their name. But uh, uh, if we speak of Sevinç and Sevim, Sevinç uh, is very easy to translate. It's joy. 
Joy, but uh, Sivim uh, is rather difficult. I mean, it's attractiveness, it's uh, loveliness. loveliness. Uh, it's in its oldest uses, uh, it's uh, beauty, even. When you see how the choice of those names must reverberate through the novel. Yes. And you didn't call him Smith and Jones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the same time, I remember when the translation was making progress, uh, Miss Gunn had uh, actually translated the uh, name Sevinch, which literally means joy, into English as joy and wanted to name that character joy. And I think you objected to it. Yes, you want to I keep the original name in, in Turkish. Because why was that? Well, uh, joy and uh, I chose joy and Joyce. Joyce uh, <laughs> were really uh, strangers uh, coming down from from the moon into that novel. That's why exactly. I objected. You don't translate uh, names. I mean, these head. A meaning, yes, but you don't translate names in, in, in novels. I'll tell you why I did that, though. Uh, because I felt that the book was um, not just Turkish, but that it was, had an international voice to it. That it should not be locked only in Turkish, but it should also, you know, this was just a, uh, a, a, a feeling I had, that it, it, it ought to, not this, this. You see, the thing is that one of the things as a Turkish writer, I know that when people are reading my books, they say, well, this is a very good book, but I can't remember the characters' names. You see, they keep on uh, uh, bothering me about this. So I know that they have this problem with Turkish I love it when an author and a translator fight it out <laughs> like that. <laughs> Now, uh, I'm wondering if um, there are any questions from the audience, and if there are, <coughs> I would uh, urge you to use the microphones. There are four of them in different parts of the room. So if you want to address any questions to Mr. Karasu or Ms. Settle or Ms. Kuhn, uh, please use the microphones, because uh, the proceedings are being recorded by the Penn Center of America. Uh, any questions from the audience? Ellen Irvin, Dr. Irvin. Uh, Naira. Please use the microphone. Oh, Thank Ellen. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, Bilge Karasu uh, or anyone else, let's see how to phrase it. Once I know I'm recorded, that obliterates any thoughts. Um, the, the name Kafka is bandied about, and it's used in review after review, and it was used as the White Castle. It's used of your novel. To what extent is it helpful to compare you to Kafka, and to what extent does it get in the way of understanding the book? Good question. Well, uh, one can think that uh, Kafka being such a mythic name, by now, uh, wherever it's heard, you know, uh, it makes the book more interesting. I mean, that's one way of seeing things. Uh, another, uh, which I think is more plausible, uh, 
uh, is that uh, whoever speaks of Kafka uh, speaks, uh, of course, of uh, his own experience of reading Kafka and uh, uh, what remains in him, mind, heart, uh, of Kafka. Uh, remembrance, a remembrance of Kafka, a very general atmosphere perhaps, a very general sense of uh, something odd in a world that uh, looks, seems uh, not quite so odd, you know, but there's something, something very odd. And that uh, makes you think of Kafka perhaps. Uh, uh, it may also be perhaps because uh, someone, I mean, a, a, a younger writer has always to to be under the the wings or the auspices of, uh, of, the of. <laughs> you know, a, a father, a forefather. Well, I, I really don't know which one works uh, when people speak of Kafka, but I, I can think of three possibilities. Haven't I read Kafka? Yes, I have. Uh, the last uh, reading of Kafka, uh, well, I, I think I was 23. <laughs> and of course now I'm a bit older, just a bit older. Uh, it's in the past. When they ask me uh, if I have been influenced, you know, by, by other writers, I say that whoever I read must have had uh, an influence on me, good or bad. But you're influenced by, by everyone you read. It's as simple as that, because whatever you do is done through the, the, the texts that precede yours in your mind, but influence in the sense of, uh, well, imitating, I wouldn't say that, no, no. The what distinguished American poet and translator William J. Smith is sitting in the first row. I wonder if Mr. Smith, Professor Smith, has a question to ask any of the panelists. May, may I just come to the microphone? Would you please, yes. Because, uh, this is a book that I have uh, had the joy, I think I can say that decidedly, of reading in manuscript in the translation from the beginning. And my impression was one that Mary Lee has, has, uh, has mentioned right away of intensity. And uh, I think it's, uh, it seems to me uh, a very facile and perhaps even wrong to think in terms of Kafka. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was thinking, and as I read this book, of, uh, of, a, uh, of, of an intensity which, which comes and one only understands at the very end of the book. So it is built like a poem. The writer I thought of was Isaac Dinizen, who was a great storyteller and who wrote with such incredible intensity 
as she did say in Seven Gothic Tales, where every sentence is involved with every character and where a strangeness is created that one does not understand until the very last word. So I think that's, that's my feeling about the book. Uh, any other questions? Madam. Would you identify yourself? Uh, this is Naira Atiyah. Yes, I'm Naira Atiyah. Um, I've just translated an Egyptian novel myself, so I'm very sympathetic to the struggle between uh, the translator and language, and certainly the struggle between translator and author I didn't have because mine was dead, is dead. But, um, uh, and, and certainly the joys of that struggle as well I haven't had. But uh, uh, my question is of a very different nature, and it has to do with the physical act of writing, uh, to both of you actually. Do you write by hand, and how do you write? <laughs> Yes, by hand, with a pencil <laughs> and a notebook, of course. Uh, and uh, it's only later that I type uh, three or four typings. May I be permitted to ask one more question? Uh, Vicky uh, Karas is multilingual, he's a true polyglot, and I'm sure is capable of writing very beautifully, very eloquently, in English, in French, in Spanish, certainly, and several other languages. But he has never written in any other language, and he has never translated his own work into any of the languages he knows. What is the reason for that? Have you ever written a short story in English? Or um, have you ever tried a novel in French? Or a poem in Spanish? Uh, I've written uh, a text in English, uh, which was attributed to you. Uh, oh, my uh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> You'll never live it down. Yes. Well, yes. Last year, uh, a friend in Paris uh, sent me uh, a photocopy of uh, the bibliographical note where my text was translated by you, you see. No, it wasn't translated. I wrote it in English uh, just because I had to write it in English. And uh, later, when I, I wrote it in Turkish, because I didn't translate it, I wrote it in Turkish from the very beginning. Uh, but why don't I uh, write in any other language? Uh, for a very simple reason. I owe myself to Turkish and nothing else. Adam. I haven't read the book. All I, I, I couldn't find it in Would my Would you tell us who you are because you're being recorded for All posterity? Right. Yes. My name is Fatma Reed. Uh, I'm a psychologist, and uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience to hear every panel member, and especially uh, Dr. Settle's comments, because it took me back to my high school years, where we were very well versed in sight fight, and the other two you mentioned, 
were very close to my heart. So it provoked all the literary interest that was implanted in me as a high school student in Istanbul. And I thank you for taking me back to those years. My question to uh, Karasu is, um, what is your philosophical stance? And do you feel in the name Night and, and the poetic prose that is so intense in, uh, in your writing, as much as I heard it tonight, uh, to what extent does it reflect uh, the man you are of, of, of, the, of the people you represent? Because as a Turkish person, as a Turk, I feel there is a very intense, introspective, depressive side to us. To what extent do you think that comes through you in your writing? To what extent your philosophy is playing a part? Or neither, I'd like to know. Thank you. Well, you <laughs> uh, uh, see, uh, uh, as one who, who who studied philosophy and who, who teaches logic, I cannot speak of my philosophy. Uh, I'll just say that I, I, I try to think. That's all. That's all I can do. Uh, I try hard. It's not easy. Uh, am I depressive? Oh, I think I am. <laughs> I think I am. Uh, am I the lonely type? Yes. Uh, do I have the tragic sense we have? Oh, yes. <laughs> what else can I say? There's one more question from over there, I think. <clears throat> My name is Emine Semra Çelik. And I, I have a question for Mr. Karasu. You told, Mr. Halman told me that you know like five, six, seven languages, maybe eight. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> my wonder is, do you know Esperanto or? <laughs> no. No, you don't. <laughs> it's because of that language, right? They say it's a death language. That would be. That, is that it? Uh, less interesting. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Um, <coughs> Thanks I for have coming. I mentioned that uh, Miss Simpson had to be called away because she had brought her baby, who was accompanying some of the readings uh, fr from the office back there, and she had to go to attend her baby. But we have had a wonderful uh, author to, to replace her. And may I, in closing, ask uh, first, uh, Mr. Smith, Professor Smith, to make a final statement about Bilge Karasu's fiction, uh, his impressions. Uh, uh, well, I don't know what to add to what has been said. I, I, <coughs> I just think uh, that what is so uh, interesting in this book is that uh, that every sentence is part of every other sentence and that is that one follows the development 
of, of, of the writer, of, of the intensity of, of the writing itself. Uh, and that is what to me gives its real poetic intensity, which is really very uh, remarkable in modern literature. Ms. Settle will also make a summation. This is a summation indeed, too. Um, I am very tired of the easy way of understanding a work of art by comparing it with another work of art. I think this is pure and utter nonsense. A work of art should stand on its own, and this does stand on its own. It's a form of intellectual laziness, I think, to always compare. And that's why I was having a little trouble with talking about Syke Fike. I did not want to compare him with anyone else because he isn't anyone else. And so let, let works of art stand on their own and forego the laziness of comparison if you can. Uh, there's a question there. Yes. Thank you. And may I now ask <coughs> Ms. Kuhn to make a closing statement of her own? Um, Oh, I'm sort of stuck for words. Um, I think that, okay, uh, to talk about comparisons, it just you know, bothers me too. It's, it's laziness. But uh, there are two, two ways people do this. One, it's just to get a handle on a writer so that uh, you can tell other people what sort of writer it is and whether they will like it or not or whether they have any experience in it. So it's just a handle. That's okay. I hate it when it's a swipe at the writer and uh, to accuse the writer of, of having somehow what benefited a little too much by somebody else's work. And this, you know, always uh, is very upsetting to me, both as a writer and as, as a translator. The sidelong swipe, no. <laughs> uh, we'll close with a final statement by the distinguished author and philosopher He's not a philosopher. Uh, what, what can I say, for goodness sake? Uh, I just thank you. Thank you very much for, for having come and listen to the end. Thank you. choreographed that deliberately so that uh, there would be one more round of applause. Uh, Miss Simpson has joined us in the, in the meantime. The baby is all right, I hope. Yes, excuse me. I'm sorry. I have jet-lagged five-month-old or four-and-a-half-month-old on my hands. Um, the, the timing of life. Um, I, fed, I fed him right beforehand, but I guess the, the airplane undid him. I just wanted to say um, I've, I've missed the last few minutes, but for those of you who haven't, who haven't yet read Night, it's just, it's a, it's a real pleasure, full of richness. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a real delight. It's accessible in English. 
um, yet it, it delivers another world entirely through its texture, through its imaginative cohesion. It's, it's a thorough delight. So I hope you'll all go from this to the book itself. And I'm grateful to Ms. Simpson, grateful to Ms. Settle, Mr. Smith, Gunerli Gun, and above all, to the audience and the great creative artist of Turkey, Bilge Karasu.